very much for the invitation. This is my second time in Phoenix, um, and it's a little warmer today than it was the last time I came, but I, I love it. So um, thanks so much. Uh, I, I've just completed a book that explores the idea of divine law. And that's the idea that the norms that guide human behavior should in some way be rooted in the divine realm. And it's a concept that's common to Judaism and Christianity and Islam, although there's nothing really inevitable about the idea. I've been told by people who study Chinese civilization that they don't think of law as being rooted in the divine realm. It's the tradition of the elders and the and parents and, and, and one's forebears that are passed on as tradition, but not necessarily divine. And in ancient Near Eastern civilizations, we know that the gods would give the kings principles of justice, or they might give them the authority to rule, but the laws themselves were written by the kings, a quote of Hammurabi, which says, I, Hammurabi, write these words, and so on. The idea of divine law, a really robust notion of divine law, in which divinity attaches in some way to the law itself, first arises in two places, um, in ancient Greece and in the Hebrew Bible. But there's a story to tell about this because the Greek and the biblical conceptions of the divine are radically different, and therefore, the way they conceive of divine law is radically different. And after Alexander will conquer the eastern end of the Mediterranean, these two very different conceptions of divine law will collide and create what I call a cognitive dissonance that has had serious consequences for those who feel compelled to negotiate the claims of both of those traditions. In antiquity, those people were ancient Jews. And so today I thought that I would um, take a little bit of time to talk first, about 10 or 15 minutes to describe these two very different ideas of divine law that come out of antiquity, the Greco-Roman idea and the biblical idea, and then describe the cognitive dissonance that occurred when these two different views encountered one another. And then I'll spend about 20 minutes or so describing how three different groups of Jews resolved this cognitive dissonance, spending the most time, I have to admit, on the rabbis. So what does it even mean to say that a law is divine? When we attribute divinity to norms or to a law, what are we saying about it? What constitutes a law's divinity? What claims are we making about something when we say it's divine? What are the traits that we're attributing to it? This is the question that first led me um, to undertake this research altogether. What is so divine about divine law? Um, and what I discovered is that in much Greek thought, law is divine because, or divine law is divine because it expresses the profound structure of a permanent natural order. It's a natural law my book, I discuss many different versions of this, and there isn't just one Greco-Roman understanding of divine law, so I'm going to just do real short shrift and focus in on one, because this is the one that's going to create the most problems um, for, for people uh, in the biblical tradition. And that's the Stoic notion of divine law, or the natural law. The Stoics believed that God was nature, that nature was divine, and therefore the rational order that organizes the universe and that they believed governed nature, the physical laws and other laws and so on, they believed that this natural law was a divine law. And they were the first to use this term, theos nomos, divine law. They don't use it often, but they use it sometimes, and they refer to a natural law. Um, and it is this rational order that governs the entire universe. 
Um, Cicero gives us our classic account or definition of the Stoic theory of divine law or natural law, and I've printed his definition um, of it on your handout there. It's the first item. He says here in describing the Stoic conception of divine or natural law, true law is right reason. It is reason itself. That's what the natural law is. It is logos, his word for reason. In agreement with nature, it's diffused over everyone, meaning it's universal. It's consistent and everlasting. You can't alter this law. You can't appeal it. You can't abolish it. There isn't a different one in Rome or in Athens or in one time and, and now and in the future. It's everlasting and immutable. Right? So if we were to extract the traits or the qualities of the divine law, according to the Stoic definition, we would see that divine law is rational. It is reason itself. It is logos. It is universal, it's eternal and unchanging, it's static in its perfection, and it's allied with nature. It's sort of true in the sense that it has a kind of reality to it, right? And very important, although it's not in this quote, but it's something the Stoics do say quite often, it's unwritten, right? For the Stoics, natural law isn't a set of written down rules. It is, you know, gravity isn't true because it's written down somewhere and enforced by some authority, you know, gravity is just this unwritten order that seems to exist in the world. So divine law isn't formulated in human language or in words or statements. It is the national order by which nature operates. So um, when it comes to law, the Greco-Roman tradition has an important binary. And that is, on the one hand, there's natural or divine law, and it has the characteristic traits that I've just described. And then on the other hand, there is what we think of as human law or positive law. That is to say, the laws that human societies posit, hence they're positive laws. Um, and the Greco-Roman tradition talks a lot about positive law as well and defines it in the exact opposite terms that it describes um, divine law. So positive law consists of often written down rules and prohibitions that are posited by human beings they are um, enforced by coercive authority. Positive law isn't universal. It's created by the authorities of a particular city or a particular state to meet the needs and conditions of that particularly, particular locality. It's subject to change and evolution over time as new circumstances arise. And it doesn't necessarily reflect truth or natural reality. We stop at a red light, not because there's something about redness that just causes me to halt, but, um, but because we've agreed, we've posited that that's what you need to do. And presumably, if we all suddenly became colorblind, just about the color red, then we would change it to blue, and that would better suit our needs, right? So human positive law um, isn't necessarily allied with some sort of natural truth or other kind of truth. These are conventions. Positive laws, according to the Greco-Roman tradition, control bad behavior, so that's a good thing. But they can't ever really lead us to our highest human virtue or human perfection, the way that following natural law does. And Plato says quite a bit about this. He says the ideal would be to be governed by the, the natural law, to be governed directly by the gods who see truths, or lacking gods, to be governed by philosophers who are sort of the closest human equivalent to gods because philosophers develop their rational capacity to be able to see the eternal truths, and therefore philosophers might be able to give us laws that are um, able to bring us to true knowledge and true virtue and true perfection. 
But Plato says very, very few such philosophers exist. In fact, we only ever see faint vestiges of this from time to time. And so not being able to be governed by the gods and their logos or the philo or philosophers, we have to make do, he says, with the second best, which is law. So in the Greco-Roman tradition, written law is by definition the second best accommodation to the fact that we lack rational perfection. And it can never bring us to true virtue. The truly rational man doesn't need the laws of the state. The truly rational person can read the rational order of the universe and align his will appropriately and rationally to the righteous and true um, ends and goals that he perceives truly. And so he doesn't need law. Right? The rational person is, is uh, free of the need for law and can conform his uh, behavior to true patterns of justice and righteousness. So positive laws are, by are in and of themselves a, a sign that we have failed in education. We have failed to reach rational perfection. They are a second best. So this is the Greco-Roman tradition. This is the way the Greco-Roman tradition talks about divine law on the one hand, and it's very ambivalent to negative view of written or human positive law on the other hand. Um, so an ancient Greek would have answered the question, what's divine about divine law? by asserting that divine law is divine by virtue of certain qualities that are inherent in it. First and foremost, its rationality. Remember, it is logos, it is order and reason, which entails its truth value, its universality, and its immutable, eternal, static character. Now we'll switch over to the biblical tradition. By contrast, according to the biblical tradition, law is divine not by virtue of any inherent quality, but because it emanates from a God who is the master of history. And that's a very different idea of divine law. Biblical divine law is divine because it's authored by, it's the command of a deity. It's not the expression of an impersonal, natural order or reason in the cosmos. The divine law of biblical tradition, which is to say that the law given to Moses, to the Israelites through Moses at Sinai, the law um, of biblical tradition is a body of legislation. It's written rules and commandments that come from a divine being and express his will as much as, if not more than, his reason. Its authority is grounded not in its character, but in its commanding source. In Exodus 24, we read, Moses went and repeated to the people all the commands of Yahweh and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice, saying, all the things that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And Moses then wrote down all the commandments of the Lord. So this divine law is written. It's not a rational order. It's concrete legislation formulated in words. And it's designed for a particular community. Indeed, in order to separate them out and mark them as distinct from other communities. And because the divine law is a positive enactment of the will, it can be modified or changed by subsequent enactments of the will. Um, so new... New rules and new ordinances can be issued as long as there's continued access to God's will. In biblical times, that's achieved by means of ongoing revelation, just consulting God directly. There are four occasions in which Moses doesn't know what the law should be. He says, I better go back and ask. So there are four times when God is directly asked what the law should be. Deuteronomy 17 um, tells the Israelites what to do when Moses is no longer there or they're not going to directly ask God. It sets up a system of sort of representative authorities. How to handle the need for change in the law is described in Deuteronomy 17. So variability in the divinely given law in response to the shifting circumstances of human life 
That's part and parcel of divine law in the biblical tradition, and quite explicitly and unapologetically so. Deuteronomy 13, for example, says, uh, now that you're entering the land of Israel to live, you're going to do things differently from the way you did here. You used to give sacrifices anywhere, now you need to do it in one central place where I'll cause my name to, drought, to dwell. Um, Deuteronomy 17 also says, when you enter the land, you might find you want a king. It doesn't say you have to, but you may decide you want a king. Okay, and if you do, then you want a king who has the following qualities or traits. Um, and then, of course, there's the famous story in Numbers 27 of the daughters of Tzalapacha. The daughters of Tzalapacha come and they say, you know, we think it's really unfair that when there are no sons, the daughters don't inherit. Instead, things go to the male, male relatives. And God says, you know, that's right, I didn't think of that. Moses, write that down. We're going to do it that way from now on. So it's, it's true that the Torah of God is also said in Deuteronomy to make the Israelites wise. Observing it will make Israel wise. I certainly spend a lot of time in my book talking about the connection between Torah and wisdom, but it remains true that the dominant description of biblical divine law maintains that the divine law expresses the will of God um, and is grounded in the will of God. Even if its effect is to make Israel, Israel wise, its authority lies in the fact that it expresses the will of God for a particular people not universal mankind, in the form of written legislation that's designed to make them fit for life in a particular place, separate and distinct from others. Legislation that is not fixed and static, but subject to change and modification as needed through historical time. So adherence to biblical tradition, right? ancient Israelites um, who adhered to biblical tradition would have answered the question, what's divine about divine law? by pointing to its origin and a divine will, a will expressed in history rather than nature. Right? Unlike the ancient Greeks and Stoics we just talked about, they would have answered the question as divine about divine law according to the qualities inherent in it that is rational, universal, true, and unchanging and immutable. That's what makes a law divine. Um, it's an impersonal order of nature. And a biblical tradition would answer that question quite differently. The attribution of divinity doesn't in itself in the biblical tradition necessarily confer upon the law any specific qualities of rationality. Indeed, some of the laws are arbitrary precisely to mark Israel as distinct. You are a people who do not eat these foods. You are a people who, etc., right, to mark you as distinct. And the laws and the dietary laws and the purity laws are prefaced, and they end with the phrase, you shall be holy, meaning you shall be separated to me, um, and therefore do these practices because of things that other people don't do. So many of the laws um, are, in fact, arbitrary in particular, not national and universal. They don't necessarily conform to truth. And certainly the law isn't um, unchanging or immutable. So what we have then are two radically different ideas of divine law that emerged in antiquity. And these two ideas collided head on after Alexander, at the ripe old age of 23 or something, decided to conquer the entire eastern end of the, of the Mediterranean um, in the late fourth century. And that created a cognitive dissonance that the West has been grappling with ever since, and I think we're grappling with even today, and I see it even in my classroom when I teach on the Bible, and students just can't understand the God that they see in the Bible. How can he change his mind here? We all know God never changes his mind. So we're still grappling with the cognitive dissonance between these different understandings of what it is to be divine. 
Um, and um, just before we review the ways, of the three different ways that different groups of Jews responded to this cognitive dissonance, I refer you to the handy chart that I placed on your panel. Um, just to review the Greco-Roman binary that I described at the outset. On the left-hand side, you've got their understanding of natural law, which is, of course, that it's universal, it's grounded in reason, that's what its authority is, and it is itself reason or rational. It's unwritten, it's eternal, it's unchanging, and it governs the sage, naturally. The wise man can read the rational law and doesn't need human positive laws. Human positive laws in particular, it's grounded in the will of the sovereign authority, whoever that might be, the king, the state, whoever, um, and therefore it can have arbitrary things like you stop at red. Um, it's written, it's temporary, it's flexible, capable of change, um, and it's really superfluous for the wise man. And for the fool, it's pretty impotent. It really doesn't bring people to virtue. People still secretly sin when they can get away with it. So it really doesn't inculcate us to virtue. For that, you need true knowledge, not just rules. That's the Greco-Roman view. Now, it's very clear that the divine law of biblical tradition, meaning the Torah given to Moses at Sinai, possesses many of the features that, to an ancient Greek, were attributed to human positive law. And that mismatch right, between the Greco-Roman understanding and the biblical understanding of divine law was obvious and troubling to ancient Jews. And they responded to that cognitive dissonance in various ways. The first response we'll think about is the response of Jews who lived in a Hellenistic environment, a fully imbibed and embraced Hellenistic values and that Hellenistic dichotomy of natural law and human positive law. Many of these Jews lived in Alexandria, Egypt. There's a very sizable Jewish community there. It was a very Hellenized city in the second and first century BCE. They spoke Greek. They adopted Hellenistic patterns of thought and culture. These Jews didn't want the law of their great heritage to be thought of, and they themselves didn't want to think of it, as anything less than divine law according to the widely accepted standards or definition of the culture that they so admired, Hellenistic culture. And so they worked like crazy to shoehorn the Mosaic law into the left-hand column on your handout, attributing to it the characteristics of Greco-Roman natural law. The clearest example is Philo of Alexandria, um, a Jewish philosopher. He died in about the year 50. He was an Alexandrian Jew, very, very much a, a student of the Hellenistic tradition and of Stoic thought. And he asserted that the Torah of biblical tradition possesses the qualities of divine natural law as understood by the Greek natural law tradition. I've given you a few quotes there, and I'll just sort of summarize. First of all, he says outright that the law of Moses not only agrees with, but is identical to the principles of eternal nature. And when I say law of Moses now, I'm talking about the rules and commandments of Exodus and Deuteronomy and so on. Not some general principle, the actual written rules. And he says that the Torah of Moses is um, not only in harmony with, but identical to the principles of eternal nature. Well, once he's identified the divine law of the biblical tradition with the divine natural law, he labors to demonstrate that it possesses the properties and qualities of Greek natural law. It's universal. We know that because, he says, the Torah opens with the story of the creation of the entire universe to tell you that the law that is going to come is really intended for the entire universe. 
He says that someday the other nations will recognize that they are following their own peculiar laws, laws and they'll set them down and take up the universal law of the cosmopolis, the world city that we possess. He says that it is also, um, um, oh yes, and, and to make that claim that of course he has to ignore the very immediate narrative tradition at Sinai where God says, you know, I will give you these, if you obey these laws, you will be a people unto me separated from other nations. Philo glosses over those passages and ignores the context at Sinai, focusing instead on the story of creation. Um, he asserts that the Bible contains all philosophical truth. He mocks those who think that the Bible is literature or history or drama or myth. Um, and there was a very large school of people of, um, in the Hellenistic Jewish community who felt that way. They felt that the Bible was sort of the homer of the Jews, right? And that this was their library and their classical tradition. And he was very angry with this group and said it's not just literature and history and myth and drama, that this is, it is the canons of truth, rational philosophical truth inscribed. Philo also had to deal with the fact, though, that this text was written, this law was written. And if you remember, for the Stoics, the minute something was written in words, then it was human, it couldn't possibly be divine, and the natural law, the divine law, was an unwritten law. Well, so, so he has to deal with the Torah's writtenness, which was an unfailing sign of human law for the Greeks. So Philo asserts that the written text of the Mosaic Code is simply a copy of the original unwritten law of nature. How does he know this? Because the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, observed the law before it was given in writing at Sinai. Now, if they were able to observe it, that is because they were sages with rational perfection. And as we know, the rationally perfect sage or philosopher can read the law of nature in nature. And the patriarchs followed the Torah, he says, and therefore they did it because the Torah is the rational, natural law, and they knew it by observing it from nature. Later were given a written copy as a kind of icon, he says. Fourth, he says that the law of his people has never changed down to the present day from its inception at Sinai. So you see, Philo responded to the cognitive dissonance between the Greek definition of divine law and the biblical representation of divine law um, by, um, by refashioning the, the biblical um, divine law to look very much like the Stoic natural law, making it rational, making it true, making it universal, and making it illegal. The second response, which we'll deal with only very briefly, um, is um, the response of Paul. Now Paul was a first century Pharisaic Jew, and I think that very much like Philo, he was aware of what was going on in the Hellenistic world around him, we know that he was aware of that, and he also evaluated his native constitution, the Torah, against the ideal standard of divine law as defined by the surrounding Greco-Roman culture. But unlike Philo, he concluded that, well, I guess the Mosaic law does possess those characteristics on the right side of the chart that I've given you. It, it is particular, and, and it does seem to have been given to the Israelites at a certain point in time, so it's temporary, it's uneternal, and it can probably disappear again, and, and so on. And he determined that it is a written constitution of particular laws for a particular people. It can't possibly be identified with the universal written law of nature that brings people to virtue and justice and is written on the hearts of, of all humans. And so, like other collections of written rules, it's the second best 
and he borrows a lot of Plato's language to talk about the law of the Jews. It's a second best, it's a necessary evil, it doesn't bring you to full virtue, in fact, it needs to be saved, and this is what Plato had said about human law, it needs to be saved by logos or reason. It's probably no accident that Paul also, and the early Christians will say that one needs to be saved from the law by Jesus who is the logos. This is straight out of Greek philosophical tradition about written law and divine law. So Philo, Philo and Paul are similar because they both buy into, or they both accept, the Greco-Roman definition of divine law and human law. And they accept um, those characteristics as defining what a divine law is. Now, if you accept that Greco-Roman tradition, that there's a binary distinction, you've got to decide where to place biblical law. When you're trying to square that Greco-Roman binary division with biblical law, you have to make a choice, and Philo and Paul just made radically different choices. Philo identified biblical law with the Greco-Roman divine law and then worked like crazy to force all of the characteristics um, of, column, of column A, you know, your left-hand column, onto um, the biblical tradition, particularly the claim that it is utterly rational. He allegorically reads many of the laws to show they're deeply rational, there's nothing arbitrary in the Bible, and also that they are true and unchanging. Paul makes the opposite move. He says the law of Moses seems to look a lot more like um, a positive human law with the characteristics on the right-hand side of your chart. It's not universal, it's not unchanging, and therefore it's temporary, and like all positive laws, it's deficient for leading us to virtue. It just makes us obedient, but not really good. And so we can, get to, we can dispense it. And so now we come to the third response, and this is the response of the Talmudic rabbis sages who between the second and the seventh century developed the classic works of the rabbinic tradition, the Midrash, the Mishnah, and the Talmud. Um, in my book, the Talmud, the, the rabbinic material takes up a good half of the book. <laughs> this is where I spend the most time. And here I argue that the rabbis basically just walked away from that Greco-Roman binary division between divine law and human law. They just resisted that definition of divine law. And they constructed a portrait of divine law in defiance of that binary division. The rabbinic construction of divine law, or Torah, Torah given to Moses at Sinai, challenges Greco-Roman assumptions about the attributes of divine law, specifically the attribute that it always conforms to truth, that it has a kind of universal rationality, and that it's immutable. And I treat each one of those subjects in a separate chapter in the book. So one chapter, for example, considers the attribute of truth. Do the rabbis understand the Torah given to Moses as being in some way true, whatever that might mean? Does it line up with some standard of truth? And you know, on one foot, I can tell you that the conclusion of that very long chapter is that they do not <laughs> represent the Torah as necessarily conforming to truth or self-identical with various kinds of truth. Um, it, whether we're talking about formal logical truth of a kind of two plus two equals four nature, or whether we're talking about judicial truth, declaring the innocent innocent and the guilty guilty, sometimes the Torah doesn't even do that. It might have mercy on someone, for example, and acquit someone who is guilty out of love and mercy. Um, or whether we're talking about kind of physical, natural truth, whether it lines up with physical reality or truth. 
We have an interesting text from the third century, a rabbinic text, that says that Torah judges who render justice in a formally correct way, just sort of look at the law and say, well, this is what the law should be in a formal, correct sense, that ignores particular circumstances are deficient. When it comes to adjudicating the law, an uncompromising adherence to truth, to a single correct answer that would emerge from just sort of abstract study or theorizing about the law, that's depicted in several rabbinic texts as quite dangerous. It's said that Jerusalem was destroyed because the people gave judgments according to the law. When they should have stopped short of the strict or the formal law, they should have stayed on the inside of the line of the law. Theoretically correct judgment or justice is sometimes destructive in practice. It can cut through mountains, the rabbis say. A pious individual will contextualize the theoretically correct norm or ruling and weigh different religious values such as humility or compassion or modesty or the desire for peace or charity, values that sometimes should simply trump truth. Truth is important, of course, but it is only one among several virtues and it should sometimes be defeated. Even in the heavenly court, truth is not always highly valued. There's a, a scholar, uh, Ricky Hittery, who's written some wonderful articles where he describes these midrashim, these rabbinic um, stories, which depict God, um, and they depict the heavenly court, and God judging various individuals, um, either biblical characters that we know, or other people who have come before God in judgment. And in many of these stories, God is more or less complicit in the defeat of truth when it comes to judging humans. In some of the texts, God would prefer to be persuaded towards mercy by a really good lawyer, um, even at the expense of justice. And in many cases, the advocate, in particular Moses, resorts to all kinds of ruses and tricks and even bribery to avert a just verdict and to win acquittal for someone. And it's an effort that's depicted as heroic. Um, and sometimes, in fact, God helps him out. He helps him cheat. Um, in various ways or points to some strategy he can use to avert a just verdict. Um, God's defeat of truth in favor of mercy and compassion is extolled by the rabbis as a divine virtue. There's a passage in the Talmud in Abu Dazarah which says that the best time to come before God in judgment is not in the first three hours of the day because that's when he's studying Torah, that's when he's occupied with truth, um, and the theoretically correct law, it's better to come before him in the second three hours of the day. That's when he's not occupied with truth. He gets up from the seat of justice and he goes and sits in the seat of mercy and he's not so concerned with truth and he moderates his judgment. He balances the, de the demands of strict justice with other considerations, compassion, mercy, love. In addition, the rabbis uphold that the Torah's rulings don't always align with truth in the sense of physical reality. Now, we're very used to that idea that law doesn't always give us truth. We know that, for example, when our law says that a corporation is a person, it doesn't mean that it's a person. We don't worry about what it's going to eat or drink or whether it's going to starve to death and so on or whether it has a family. It means it's a legal fiction that we're using in order to enable the corporation to do certain things we want it to do. But that's human law, and we're used to the fact that human law isn't really about truth, and we also know that sometimes our 
courts declare innocent people were all quite sure guilty, but they weren't able technically to um, declare them guilty, and so on. So we're very used to the idea that law doesn't line up with truth, but a divine law? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if you're certainly a Stoic. A divine law should be true somehow. But the rabbis have no problem with representing the Torah's rulings as out of step with truth, even in the sense of physical reality or nature. There's a very famous passage in the Mishnah in Tractate Rosh Hashanah, and some of you may be familiar with it. Um, the most important idea that emerges from this passage is that the rabbinic court um, can set the calendar in defiance of astronomical reality. It may not sound like a very important deal, but it is an important deal to the rabbis because there are certain holidays that have to be observed in a way that will be severely punished if they're not observed correctly. So for example, Yom Kippur. One is supposed to fast on Yom Kippur, and the biblical punishment for failure to do so is karet, which is even worse than death. It's like extirpation of your entire line of the people. Okay? So you want to make sure you fast on Yom Kippur. So it was a big deal in antiquity to know exactly when the first of the month was so that you could figure out when the tenth of the month was to be sure you fasted on the correct day and didn't eat on Yom Kippur because you had the wrong day. Fixing the calendar was hugely important in antiquity and it was a sign of great authority. And there's a very important story in Rosh Hashanah in which Rabbi Gamaliel knowingly accepts false testimony about the phases of the moon. The witnesses, of course, come and attest to what they see, and this is how the court determined the calendar. These two witnesses come and declare that they saw something which is evidently astronomically impossible. My knowledge of astronomy is not great, but evidently you can't see what it is they said they saw. And the rest of the court knows it, and Rabbi Gamaliel accepts their testimony and he declares the first of the month. And the other rabbis are shocked, and they discuss this, and what emerges is that the, the Torah doesn't always have to line up with astronomical or physical reality. In an elaboration of the story in the Talmud, Rabbi Akiva, and this is, this is on your text, this is, this is on your handout, this is text number three. This is an elaboration of the story in the Talmud, and Rabbi Akiva here um, is represented as finding scriptural warrant for the right of the rabbis to determine the calendar even if when they do so, they, they are in error or misled. Rabbi Kiva then said to Rabbi Yoshua, the text says, you, you, you. These are three verses in the book of Leviticus that refer to the fixing of the calendar. And in each of those verses, it talks about you will observe the copy, the, this festival on this date. You will, right? it's using this word you three times in reference to the calendar. So the text says you, 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 three times in three different verses to indicate that you may fix the festivals even if you err inadvertently, if you make a mistake, right, without knowing it. You, even if you err deliberately, you make a mistake and you know it, you're doing it on purpose. And you, even if you are misled, right, so someone gives you false testimony, doesn't matter, you still, the calendar that you declare is still the calendar. We're not looking for astronomical, physical correctness or reality. Um, and Rabbi Yoshua replied to him saying, Akiva, you have comforted me, you have comforted me. So um, this is all, of course, a very great contrast to other groups in antiquity. We know of a group that lived um, in a sectarian community out of Wadi Qumran near the Dead Sea. And one of the reasons that group had to go and live out there was because they felt that the community in Jerusalem was not fixing the calendar properly. Um, and they wanted to observe the calendar at the precisely, astronomically correct time. They followed a 364-day, basically, solar 
calendar, almost solar calendar, and did not um, believe in the combined lunar solar calendar that was used, and um, felt that the other Jews were violating Yom Kippur in particular, and were subjecting the entire community to grave peril because they weren't following the astronomically true or correct calendar. And one of the terms or conditions for joining the community was that you would not advance or delay the festivals from what their true, astronomically correct heavenly observance was. You needed to observe them as the angels in heaven observed them. But the rabbis and rabbinic understanding of Torah is one that tolerates all kinds of legal fictions and counterfactual rulings, especially when these help achieve humane and compassionate goals, such as the famous case of a woman who remarries after witnesses report that her husband is dead, and then her husband returns. If you've seen the movie The Return of Martin Gare, that's this particular story in the Talmud. And uh, when her husband does return, one very famous authority, Rav, allows the um, woman's new marriage to remain as a marriage, and he uses a legal fiction to just simply declare that the man is not himself, and the woman's new marriage is not disruptive. Fictive legal presumptions are also tolerated. We um, presume that all women, for example, are in a state of ritual purity when their husbands return from a journey, even though statistically this will not always factually be the case, but the rabbis say that the mitzvah appropriation is more important, and uh, therefore we simply have this legal fiction to enable that to be the case. So when it comes to truth, the connection between the Torah and truth is not a necessary one, and the Torah is often declared, or the law is declared to uh, be in defiance of sometimes formal or logical truth, sometimes judicial truth, and sometimes ontological reality or physical truth. So what about the Torah's relation to rationality? Um, that's another key indicator of divine status according to the Greco-Roman conception of divine law. And here I'm going to be very brief. Um, but I will just say that the Torah is not consistently represented in rabbinic texts as intrinsically rational, inherently rational. Um, in fact, in hundreds of texts, the Mosaic Law is portrayed as an arbitrary divine decree, many of whose commandments run counter to the natural tendencies of human beings, um, or as so illogical that they inspire protest and mockery by other nations, or Satan, or the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, the very famous passage in Sifra that says, you know, we have certain laws, like laws against murder and, and incest and so on, and, and those, even if they hadn't been written in the Torah, would be written there, because every legal system in the world has them. Everybody knows these are rational laws that everybody arrives at. But then there are laws in the Torah, like some of the ritual purity laws, the law of the red heifer, which is a purity ritual for getting rid of corpse impurity, um, or the wearing of fringes, these are the ones that the Satan and the nations mock us and laugh at us for because they're arbitrary and irrational. But the text goes on to say that those are the really important ones. Those are the ones we have to do, even though there's no reason to. And they provide opportunities to show our obedience and devotion to God. The others are easy. Other nations do those too. They make sense. It's the ones that don't make sense and are arbitrary that are marked by the divinity of the text. This is a very interesting claim and the opposite of the Stoic claim. For them, what's divine is rational. The rabbis were declaring that it's these irrational laws that are precisely the mark of their divinity. And then finally, there's another chapter in the book that um, looks at the question of 
immutability and shows that according to the rabbis, divine law is not immutable. On the contrary, the Torah, the divine law, is susceptible to moral critique and modification. And again, that's the mark of its divinity. Sometimes the rabbis will state what the divine law should be and then set it aside for a better ruling, better in the sense of morally better. We see this, uh, for example, in, in two different tractates of the Mishnah, third century legal work, Mishnah 18, chapters four and five, they list a whole series of rulings or ordinances that adjust the divine law, rabbinic um, adjustments to the divine law um, for various reasons, usually for the sake of the social order, um, or to pursue peace or for the betterment of the public welfare. So for example, they, they state in that chapter that according to the formal law, the formal divine law, it's, it's a Torah law, that a husband has complete control over divorce, for example. And therefore, if a husband has sent his wife a divorce document by the hand of an agent, he can annul it, even without his wife's knowledge, simply you know, take steps to annul it without telling her. That would be his right by Torah law. But the rabbis decide that this is not a good thing. And so they deprive a husband of this right um, for the sake of the social order. After all, the woman may receive the divorce and believe that she is divorced and take action on that, um, and maybe even marry um, in the next half hour and create all sorts of problems. And this is not a good thing. The husband should not be able to annul his uh, divorce document that has been sent for delivery without informing his wife. In the same way, a man can be a slave owned by two people. One might free him and the other might not. And technically, that would be correct by Torah law, but the rabbis say, however, that could lead to all sorts of uh, misery for the slave. He, can, he cannot marry because he can't marry a slave if he's half free, or an Israelite if he's half slave, and therefore we compel the other person to um, free him for the sake of the social order. So in other words, for the rabbis, the divine law, the law that emerges from the Torah, doesn't always dictate the best and most desirable answer. And humans are an essential partner in, in critiquing the law and making it better, usually, usually just based on an intuitive sense that the law is just not very good. In fact, the rabbis maintain that, the humans, that humans have the power to critique and modify the divine decree. Some texts are quite explicit in their aggressive criticism of the divine law as morally inferior. There are fascinating sources that describe God as being corrected by the moral insights and arguments of human beings. Um, one scholar, a young scholar named Dov Weiss, um, has a book that I think has just come out, or not, it's about to come out, where he looks at 140 um, confrontational texts from rabbinic literature between the third and seventh centuries. These are texts where humans openly confront God for his moral blindness um, or the blindness of a particular law or a particular decree. Various human characters will expose the moral imperfections of God. Sometimes God rejects the critique, sometimes he ignores it, sometimes he's hurt by it, but sometimes quite significantly, he courageously admits the flaw and he adopts the more ethical stance proposed by the person who's critiquing him and responds appropriately. So this is, uh, there's an example of this, text number four. Um, this is referring to God's practice of intergenerational punishment, right? Punishing the children for the sins of the parents. Um, there's a point in the book of Exodus where God 
describes himself to Moses as a God who visits the guilt of the parents upon the children. So this passage is talking about that. When the Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, said to Moses, that I am a God who is visiting the guilt of the parents upon the children, in Exodus 34, Moses objected to this. And he said, Master of the world, how many evil people give birth to righteous people? Should they take punishment for the sins of the parents? And he gives examples, right? Terah worshipped idols, Abraham his son was righteous, and so on. Is it appropriate, appropriate that righteous people shall receive lashes for the, uh, for the sins of their parents? And God said to him, you taught me something. By your life I will nullify my decree and establish your word. So Moses expresses a moral outrage over this principle of transgenerational punishment, and God learns from him. He annuls his decree, he establishes a new rule of individual punishment that's articulated in, in uh, Yechezkel. In another instance, Moses um, is said to teach God that it's best to sue for peace first before engaging in a war, and uh, according to the Midrash, God um, accepts this policy in place of his earlier decree of just declaring war without negotiations. This is nice because it actually takes care of a problem in the biblical text where you do see these two different things. And so the rabbis are accounting for that as God you know, learning from Moses and therefore changing, uh, changing the law. Other rabbinic passages contain human criticism and divine concession. It's because Abraham expresses his moral doubts about the flood that God moderates, is willing to moderate his behavior in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah and spare it if there are righteous people found there and so on. There weren't 10 found there, but he was willing at least. Um, in another text, God learns a lesson in compassion and altruism from Leah. In another text, when Moses objects to the severity of stoning as a punishment for certain sins, God revokes the punishment and instead um, the punishment is lashes and not, not death. So in all of these cases, the rabbis are telling stories in which we have modifications of divine behavior or divine law as a result of human input and revision. And it's a very short distance from the view that God consents to or is desirous of human assistance in modifying the strict justice of his own decrees to the view that he needs it. Um, I was studying some texts with people just before this, and this was one of the texts I skipped because I knew we would be doing it um, just now. But there's a, a wonderful and very dramatic illustration of God's dependence on human intervention to defeat him in the execution of his own flawed decrees um, that's found in Exodus 43.4 in reference to the golden calf story. Uh, according to the biblical story there, God is infuriated by the Israelites' disloyalty and he declares to Moses his intention to wipe them out entirely. He orders Moses to stand aside and let him be, but Moses doesn't. Instead, he implores God not to destroy the people. And this is where the Midrash begins. According to the Midrash, I'll read you the passage in a second, but according to the Midrash, God desperately wants to forgive Israel, but he can't. He's trapped by his law. In fact, I want to read you the fuller passage. I gave you only part of it. Um, so this is how the full passage goes. Um, they're trying to explain the phrase, Vayechal Moses, Vayechal the Lord. We translate it as God implored the Lord, but this word Vayechal can also mean to be to profane or to annul a vow, and that's what they're gonna play with. What does this mean, Vayechal, right? 
It means that he, Moses, absolved his creator of his vow. How? When Israel made the calf, Moses began to entreat God to forgive them, but God said, Moses, I'm stuck. I've already taken an oath back there in Exodus 22, saying, whoever sacrifices to a God other than the Lord shall be prescribed, shall be destroyed. I can't take back an oath, which I wrote, you read Exodus 22, we were just discussing it 15 minutes ago, Moses, right here on the top of the mountain. I'm stuck, I, I've made this law, and I can't retract what is proceeded from my mouth. God is trapped by his own principles of law. Moses said to him, Lord of the universe, didn't you grant me the power of annulment of oaths over there in Numbers 33, if you keep reading, Numbers 30, where you wrote the following, you wrote, if a man makes a vow, he shall not break, yachel, same word, he shall not break his pledge, his vow. Meaning, Moses says, that he himself cannot break the pledge or the vow, but a scholar can absolve his vow if he consults him. That thereupon Moses wrapped himself, this is where your text picks up, thereupon Moses wrapped himself in his cloak, like a rabbi, and seated himself in the posture of a sage, and God shows up as a, as a petitioner at his door. I love this picture. You're going to see God sort of standing hat in hand, very sheepishly. I said this really stupid thing. I have to get out of it now. And Moses is sitting there, and he goes, yes, yes, I'll get you out of this. So he stands uh, before him like one asking for the annulment of his vow. What did Moses say to him? A hard thing. He said, do you now regret your vow? And he said to him, this is, in fact, Exodus 32, verse 9, where the narrator says, God repented of the evil he said he would do to his people. God, He said, do you regret your vow? And he said, I repent, or I regret now the vow of the evil which I said I would do to my people. And when Moses heard this, he said, it is absolved for you, it is absolved for you. There is neither vow nor oath any longer. And for this reason, it says, by Yechal Moshe, meaning Moses absolved the Lord of his vow. It's an astonishing portrait of, of God trapped by his own law of justice and true judgment and dependent upon the ingenious intervention of a human partner in order to escape the dictates of his divine law. These texts from the 3rd to the 7th century depict what we might call a fallible God. I'm not sure I would say fallible. I would say dynamic, perhaps. But they depict, they depict a fallible God, perhaps, one who's capable of error and at times in need of moral instruction by humans. Most people assume that the Talmudic rabbis could never have seen God as less than morally perfect, open to being corrected or subverted or even defeated by humans. But these texts suggest otherwise. Indeed, God is said to even need and delight in such defeats. So the idea of a morally evolving divine being whose law should be subjected to moral critique and modified if necessary stands at a very great distance from the Greco-Roman conception of divinity and the fixed and unchanging and perfect divine law. To modify divine law on the basis of practical reasoning or consideration of equity or mercy or just good rhetorical argument or legal ruses and tricks uh, would have been nonsensical if not scandalous in a Greco-Roman context. Because in Hellenistic thought, the perfect natural or divine law is an expression of a uniform, unchanging order that's universally valid. It would just make no sense to speak of its adjustment any more than we would speak about adjusting the law of gravity. Why don't we just suspend it every Tuesday? 
You know, we wouldn't do that. It makes no sense. In fact, Greco-Roman natural law or divine law theory envisages the opposite. You critique and you modify human positive law in light of the immutable divine natural laws. So if we passed a law commanding people to elevate in the air every Tuesday, right? We the, the law of gravity would force us to modify that because it is not um, not realistic. It's impossible. So the rabbis give us this paradoxical reversal. They depict the critique and the modification of divine law, the Torah, in the light of human experience, human intuition. It's the divine law that's suggested on the basis of human wisdom, not human law that has to conform to the dictates of a perfect divine law. And the divine law in rabbinic, uh, in rabbinic construction changes and evolves, not because it's imperfect so much, but because it is perfect, a rigid, unresponsive law that simply cuts through mountains would be imperfect. And that's an importantly, important idea that was radical in its time. The modification of the divine law and the implied fallibility of the divine lawgiver didn't negate the law's divinity or authority in the eyes of the rabbis. And that's because biblical and rabbinic tradition locate their God not in static, uniform nature, or not only there, but in dynamic history. God is intimately involved in and responsive to changing historical circumstances and moral considerations. So the divine law's perfection isn't diminished by the fact that it's particular, it's flexible, it's responsive, rather than universal, static, and uniform. Its perfection is constituted by those features, and humans are active participants and necessary partners with God in the ongoing evolution of his Torah. So to sum up, in this book that I've just described to you, I argue that the rabbis of the Talmudic era didn't shy away from attributing to the Torah, to the divine law, characteristic traits or features that were unfailing indicators of human positive law to those in a Greco-Roman mindset. Oddly enough, in that respect, the rabbis resembled Paul more than Philo because Paul also thought that it had those characteristics, right? This particular and changing temporary. Um, however, unlike Paul, they saw this as a virtue of the law and not a vice. The rabbis insisted on the divinity and the enduring relevance of the Torah. And in that respect, they resembled Philo more than Paul. But in a third respect, they resembled neither Philo nor Paul in constructing a portrait of divine law whose very divinity was enhanced rather than harmed by its divorce from truth and its susceptibility to moral critique and modification in response to the needs and shifting circumstances of human experience, they were entirely unique. And they were also entirely scandalous. To anyone who accepts the Greco-Roman conception of divine law, the idea that divine law would not be self-identical truth somehow, would not be universal, unchanging, is shocking, indeed laughable. And I believe that the rabbis knew that, that theirs was a very self-aware choice. And I say that because there are many passages in rabbinic literature in which the rabbis depict themselves as being mocked by outsiders for their understanding of divine law as something that's not always lined up with truth, not always rational, sometimes arbitrary. They knew that such features looked ridiculous to those who held with the Greco-Roman idea that divine law by definition is true, rational, and immutable. The very fact that they could 
depict themselves in dialogues being mocked by others who hold those other beliefs shows that they were very aware of the alternative prevailing view of divine law and they consciously rejected it, allowing the divine law to deviate from truth, rationality, and immutability. In the medieval and modern period, the uh, rabbinic conception of divine law would be overshadowed in the West. The Greco-Roman understanding of, of divine law and positive law really became controlling paradigms in the conception of divine law in the West, beginning in the post-Talmudic period. Islam have Greek wisdoms with entering um, back into consideration by the monotheistic traditions and being accepted broadly by all three traditions. So all three biblical uh, religious biblical religions um, will essentially absorb this paradigm of divine law and human law, um, although in different ways and to widely varying degrees. And we in the West are all heirs to this tradition too. So that most people today, if you were to ask them, and I know because I have done this, if you were to ask them, if there were a divine law, what do you think it would be like? They will say to you, well, um, it would apply to everybody. You know, a divine law would apply to everyone and it would never change. And um, it would have to make sense, of course. Um, and it would, it would be true in some way. Universal, rational, true, and immutable. Um, and so because we have inherited that understanding of divine, we map onto the biblical text, the Torah, those characteristic traits when we look at it. And so for us, too, the rabbinic construction of divine law can seem scandalous. And I notice that people do smile and laugh sometimes when I read them, these rabbinic stories. Because a law that's divorced from truth and subject to change or evolution is surely human. But who says? And perhaps there's something to be gained from bringing the rabbinic construction of divine law out of the shadows, from considering the possibility that a law, and even a text, can be divine without being universal absolute, unchanging truth. So I'm going to leave you with these provocative questions, okay? And then a last text. What if the rabbis were right? What if biblical law was written not to prescribe an eternal fixed truth of some kind? What if biblical law was written in such a way as to challenge us to think, to consider what justice and equity actually are, and not to settle for the claim that they are found in and confined to prescriptive and flexible rules? What if biblical law was written in such a way as to encourage us to reason and to feel, to continually evaluate its claims, to disagree with it, and to improve it when we can? What if biblical law was written on the assumption that immersing ourselves in its modes of argumentation and instruction and empathy were intended to create respectful sparring partners for and critics of God? What if biblical law was written in such a way as to allow the human voice to eclipse the divine voice in its moral clarity and interpretive authority? The ancient rabbis believed it was, and I think they believed that God didn't give a fixed and inflexible law to be mechanistically and mindlessly applied, but a set of teachings, immersion in the subtleties of which should lead to the formation of autonomous and intelligent moral beings. And on this view, God's greatest success and pleasure is found when humans take it upon themselves to serve as his moral critics and to create from what they've been given something new and something greater. So we have one last rabbinic text to illustrate this point. I believe I printed it. You have one more here, right?
Yeah. This um, contains a parable. To what can it, the Torah, the giving of the Torah, be compared? To a king of flesh and blood who had two servants and loved them both with a perfect love. He gave each of them a measure of wheat and each a bundle of flax. What did the wise servant do? He took the flax and spun a cloth. He took the wheat and made flour. He cleaned the flour and ground, kneaded and baked it, and set it on top of the table. And then he spread the cloth over it and left it until the king would come. The foolish servant, however, did nothing at all. After some time, the king returned from a journey and came into his house. He said to his servants, my sons, bring me what I gave you. One servant showed the wheat still in the box with the bundle of flax upon it. Alas for his shame, alas for his disgrace. When the Holy One blessed be he gave the Torah to Israel, he gave it only in the form of wheat for us to make flour from it and flax for us to make a garment from it. Thank you so much for your attention this evening. I don't know what your time frame is, but I'm, yeah. I'm here for a while, so I'm happy to take questions. That's all right. Yes? Um, so two questions. One is, would you say that the rabbis during the medieval period, such as Maimonides, redefined this whole rabbinic attitude and realigned it with the stone opinion, and that's why Maimonides coined the 13 principles of faith, where the Torah cannot be changed, and, and that's what remains today in the Orthodox? Yes. Maimonides is my. So, he wanted to know if, um, whether in the medieval period that was a time when more of this view, this, this more Greco-Roman paradigm begins to enter in and prevail, and whether Maimonides, in fact, might be the conduit for that, as we see in the formulation of his 13 principles and the idea that the Torah never changes and so on. Maimonides is always a tricky character, of course, because he had his sort of exoteric writings and his more esoteric writings, and sometimes um, some of the things that he says in his exoteric writings about the Torah never changing and so on, they're contradicted by things that he says in his more philosophical writings, so um, it's always a little bit difficult. But yes, definitely very much. Um, uh, it, it's not so much stoic, but um, he, he's very much someone who absorbs certain elements of Aristotelian thought, and that's consistent with this. So even though I picked out the stoics here, um, in the book I talk in general, I go through Plato, I go through Aristotle, I go through the cynics, I go through the stoics, I go through a number of different schools, but the Stoics give us the clearest definition, but all of them share, and by the time we get to the Hellenistic period and sort of popular versions of Greco-Roman thought, all of them share this binary. They might differ a little bit in some of the details, and whether they think written law is awful or okay or pretty good, but they all share that binary. And the divine law notion is a, is a pretty clear and standard one of something perfect and immutable and universal and so on. So uh, it's quite clear that those are the ideas that enter back into, uh, they're suppressed for some time, but really through their translation into Arabic and through Islamic culture, they spread and Maimonides very much absorbs these ideas. And of course, Thomas Aquinas relies on Maimonides as well as Aristotle in his construction of this whole category of divine law versus human law that would become the Catholic tradition and the Catholic idea of the natural law. Human, human laws cannot violate the natural law sanctity of life, other sorts of things. Um, Judaism never quite goes there, but Maimonides is about the closest you get to that kind of thing. And it, it does it does have um, a staying power. You do start to find stronger and stronger ideas about the perfection of the, of the Torah, its eternal nature, it can never be changed. And that's simply not a view that's really in the Talmudic, it's just not 
mean, that's just really not the Talmudic tradition. Well, 
we don't know what to do, but we presume for this woman it's better for her to be in that in a marriage, even if it's abusive, abusive than to be alone, where she would probably be no support whatsoever. Um, so that's the presumption. But they make it clear it's a presumption. A legal presumption just means we operate when we don't know, but if we have information to the contrary, then we don't use the presumption, right? But Rabbi Soloveitchik and the Brisker movement talks about that particular presumption, and he says it's built into the ontological reality of women that it's better for them to be in abusive marriage than to be alone. That's sort of written in their nature. It's like it's like, that's, that's Quran. That's Quran. To give that kind of hard reality to the law, that was what the sectarians did. That's what the ultra-Orthodox are doing today in a way. It's interesting how ideas come around and, and change, but to me that's the same way to respond to the cognitive dissonance. There are features of, of law, biblical law, rabbinic law, that don't look divine on that notion of true, so you know what, I'll say they're true, pure, immutable, unchanging, etc. That's how I make them divine. It takes, I think, a lot more courage to say, maybe being divine means I still have some work to do to figure out what's right, not just to passively accept things as given and I don't have any work to do. I'd rather think that I've got something to do for the 75 years I'm on Earth, not just to follow something that was fixed and written down, but I've got to use my head and think about what justice and equity look like. Okay, I, I can't get too far away from it. I'm on a leash. So. <laughs> you ever look at the situation maybe from a more mystical viewpoint where we don't look at a distinction between God and people? And we don't we don't have God saying this and doing this and that. My own life, you know, but basically, essentially, the, the uh, you know, if God said, I'm history, and I stopped the 7th century, and of course the mystical tradition really picks up after that. Um, so sometimes I like to take, when I'm teaching, I like to take glances to that tradition, and even into the modern tradition to look at things and see how they connect. In the book, I really only go to the 7th century. We don't have, um, in the text that I'm looking at, a strongly developed mystical tradition. There are mystical texts that are rabbinic. I don't really look at those. Nevertheless, having said that, <laughs> I still think that in a way that, um, what you're suggesting is really part of what's going on here, right? That the language I use is I say, um, it's a God who's, who's encountered through history, meaning in, in life, in living, not a God who's known through contemplation of nature or contemplation of philosophical rational principles that lead me to an unmoved mover, you know? But this is a God who's known in the hurly-burly of life. You know, now you know, that might be a way of saying that there's some deep interconnectedness between um, gods and humans, and maybe a mystic would put it in, in um, you know, in terms that well, are more mystical. I don't know how, what other adjective to use to describe it. Um, so I don't think it's that far removed in a way from what I'm saying. Is that I think that for the, for the rabbis, God is experiential, and not experiential in the sense of over here having a mystical experience. 
experiential in the, the um, hard work of figuring out how to live as human beings, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I don't think you did. I, I, I think, think it's, it's, a different, yeah. different, it's a different modality of speaking, a different language, but I think it's a very, very similar. Yeah, that's what I say. I think I'm very sympathetic to that. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I, I'm very sympathetic to that. Yeah, yeah. The texts I look at just happen to not use a mystical modality so much, but there are texts that do, and I think that they emerge really from the same kind of conception. Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, how would you reconcile uh, the contradiction in the comments? You presented basically that the view of the rabbis was that they're looking on one hand that the Torah law is something that can be changed and something that's imperfect, and the story of Rabbi Akiva that uh, even if the human judges make a mistake, it's like God conforms to that. Um, how would you reconcile that with the opposite view in the Talmud, for example, in the story of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka, when his students ask him that the law of Parah Dumat doesn't make any sense. Oh, that's the same. That's the same. That's a great. I use that as one of my example texts, actually. But he says, right? He says, you're right. The law doesn't make any sense. But what am I supposed to do? It was given. It's a That's the point. It's not rational. It's an arbitrary decree. We so. The text, um, the, so this young man is pointing, I thought you were going to point to a different text that does, in fact, <laughs> challenge this thesis. So I was going to say that. Okay. I don't know which one you're no, that, to. that one actually is a support, and I use that one and discuss it quite a bit. So the question is, you know, are there some countervailing texts? And one text was proposed. The text that you proposed is actually one that I think supports what I was saying. But the case remains that there are times when the rabbis push back against this. So let me just say something about each of those two things, and I'll try to be quick. There's this wonderful text, which I use in the chapter where I talk about the irrationality of the law. How Torah is not necessarily rational. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. It's not necessarily one or the other. That's not what's divine about it, whether it's rational or irrational. So you have both kinds of decrees. The rabbis understand the purity laws to be irrational, arbitrary decrees. Um, those were exactly the laws which ever since antiquity, in fact, made Jews feel uncomfortable in the eyes of others. So the letter of Aristeas is an ancient work from about the third century BCE, early second century, and Philo's writings, these are works um, and others in which you have Gentiles observing and saying, why don't you eat pork? Or why don't you, why do you observe these odd purity laws? And there, in those very Hellenistic texts, they allegorize the laws and show it's highly rational for various reasons. And they show how rational they are and not arbitrary. The rabbis don't go that route. That's a great text, the one you cite. Rabbi Yochanan um, is uh, talking to a, a Gentile observer who says, this whole weird thing that you do with this red heifer, you burn the red heifer and take the ashes and mix them with water and sprinkle them, to, to, and then this impurity goes away or something. And Rabbi Yochanan makes an effort to answer him on his own terms. So well, don't you also have, see sometimes people are sick and they go into an idolatrous shrine, or they do various things, and what do you do? And, he, and the Gentile explains what they do. And, and uh, in any event, he gets them to understand that it's a similar kind of, you know, you have similar activities, we do this sort of thing, and it chases away the impure spirit, or the demon, or what have you. The Gentile goes satisfied at having received an answer that makes sense, right? It seems to be a rational practice now. And Rabbi Yochanan turns around, and there are his students looking at him amazed and saying, look, really? <laughs> And he says, no, not really. There's no such thing as impurity, 
right? There's no such thing as this, you know, getting rid of it. We do it because it was an arbitrary decree commanded by God, and we do it. That's why we do it. So it's precisely, it's a great proof of a text that shows, depending on the audience you talk to, whether you, they know that outsiders will look at it and think they're crazy, so we'll give them a rational answer, but we inside know that we do it because we're commanded to. It's an opportunity to show obedience and to mark ourselves as the people who does this sort of thing. However, there are texts, okay, and this I do talk about in the book, that there is a creeping anxiety um, that the later you go in rabbinic literature, and more in Babel, in Babylonia, right, um, they are more comfortable with laws that don't quite line up with truth. They get uncomfortable with some of these legal fictions, even that menstrual impurity legal fiction that I said, that all wives and the mission all wives are deemed as a legal fiction to be ritually pure for their husbands if their husbands have away, been away on a journey. That gets discussed in the Talmuds. They start to be uncomfortable as that's not really true. Maybe it's only for women who have a predictable period so they can kind of count the days. And by the time you get to the late level of the Babylonian Talmud, they've made it very realistic. It really only applies to women for whom it's like 99% sure they won't be menstruated. They're not happy with the legal fictions. They start to absorb this idea that the divine law somehow should be real. It shouldn't be divorced from reality. So there's pushback. So in every chapter, after I go through and show their kind of radical construction of divine law, I also show this creeping discomfort with what they themselves have created as you go later and later in the Babylonian hall in particular. So there, there is pushback. And I, I you know, but it's, I have 50 minutes to tell you about a 400-page book. So, you know, I don't go into that. Thank you. So, thank you.